You're listening to a podcast from the 2012 Norfolk and Norwich Festival, brought to you by Writer Centre Norwich. This podcast features writer Alain de Botton in conversation about his book, Religion for Atheists. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, welcome to Norwich Playhouse again. Um, my name's Chris Gribble. I'm the Chief Exec at Writer Centre Norwich. And it's an enormous pleasure to welcome you this evening to the first of 2012's Words and Ideas events as part of Norfolk and Norwich Festival. We've worked with the festival for, gosh, four or five years now, I think, and this is the largest programme that we've ever presented with them, and we're really just absolutely delighted at the response that we've had to it. I'm not going to say a huge amount this evening before I introduce your host for this evening and also Anne uh, Botton, but I did want to say one thing. Um, this week it was announced that Norwich has become England's first UNESCO City of Literature, and it's a, a really hugely exciting piece of news for us. Um, the accreditation will allow us to work on an international stage uh, with a range of really exciting partners to bring fantastically uh, wonderful authors, events, programmes to the city and to the county as well. Uh, I was at a party about four years ago, I think, in London, when we were just plotting the very early stages of this bid, and a very lovely um, lady from the London publishing world kind of um, asked me what I was doing and I told her about Norwich and Norfolk and how fantastic it was and how there were great audiences and readers and busy public libraries and she turned around to me and said, how marvellous, I didn't know they read books in Norfolk. <laughs> and I thought, okay, well, you, know, you are a nice lady and you have been drinking, so um, I, I'll, I'll leave it there. But it, can't, it sent me back to Norwich absolutely determined and with the fantastic team at Writers' Centre Norwich and the city and the county and particularly the Arts Council behind us, we've worked for three and a half years to bring this accreditation to the city. And I think that if we look at the next two weeks, with this evening's event for Anne de Botton, we've got Caroline Duffy, the Poet Laureate, coming. We've got the amazing Alan Moore and Ian Sinclair coming. We've got three stunning Persian poets from Afghanistan. We've got a 12-hour televised live stream tribunal here tomorrow from Stockholm about writers and human rights. And then in June, we've got the Professor Nobel Laureate, John Kurtzia, coming again. We've got Michael Ondarcha, the author of The English Patient. We have Camilla Shamsi, Jeanette Winterson, Joe Shapcott. Just fantastic writers coming to a city where there are really wonderful, attentive and appreciative readers. So uh, it's a very exciting time for us in Norwich and I'm glad you're here at the start of the event. I really will not say anything more now, but I'd like to welcome to the stage, first of all, your host of this evening, Mitchell Albert, and then uh, Alain de Botton. Thank you very much. Good evening. My name is Mitchell Albert. I'm the program director of Writer uh, Center Norwich, and it's uh, my great pleasure to be hosting Alain de Botton tonight. In 1993, the 23-year-old Alain de Botton published Essays in Love, a uh, fictional narrative that went on to sell uh, kajillions of copies. In 1997, the delights of fiction not he turned to nonfiction to write How Proofs Can Save Your Life Can Change Your Life, which also went on to become a massive bestseller. And thus was launched Alain's great project to convey the lessons of culture in a manner that speaks directly to the needs of the individual. He has carried this ethos through numerous other works, including The Consolations of Philosophy, Status Anxiety, The Architecture of Happiness, and his latest, which we shall be discussing tonight, Religion for Atheists. In 2008, he formalized this project, helping to found the School of Life in London, 
a dogma-free educational institution dedicated to helping people respond to the major questions of existence. How am I to be happy? How can I best lead my life? Why are relationships so tricky? And so on. You've also seen Alain on television and heard him on radio. And tonight we're extraordinarily pleased to welcome him. Please join me in greeting Alain de Botton. huge pleasure for me to be uh, here in, uh, in Norwich tonight and um, talking about a subject really very close to my heart, which is in a sense wisdom. Um, I've been looking for wisdom in uh, many parts for many, many years. I started looking for wisdom in literature, a move to philosophy, um, psychoanalysis, sociology, art, art theory, um, politics, many, many areas um, that have attracted me in my works. And I've always been on the lookout for this thing which we can call wisdom. Now, what is wisdom? Wisdom, I think, is a little subsection of knowledge. It's a little part of knowledge that's not only about searching for something that's true, but also something that's true and helpful. Um, something that can, in large ways or small ways, help you to live a better, more fulfilled, less um, uh, agonized life. And that's the bit that I'm interested in, this pursuit of, of wisdom. And um, at a certain point, it struck me that the one discipline that I never really looked at and that was sort of staring at me, because it was in a way so obvious and yet so challenging to me, um, was religion. Um, and uh, so about three years ago, I, I thought, really, I, I want to embark on a book about religion. Now, I was very surprised by my own desire to do this, partly because I am a committed atheist. Um, and atheists are, if you listen to the, the mood of the last decade or so, atheists are meant to hate religion. Um, they're meant to think not only that religion is, is wrong, that the claims about God's existence are false, but also that those who believe are somehow mentally impaired, dangerous uh, people. This has been the mood music from North Oxford. And um, it's been very difficult for someone who doesn't believe to imagine that they might, at some level, um, be quite sympathetic towards religion. Um, and yet that was, in a sense, my discovery, my, my position. As I say, it felt rather odd to me that I might be both a very committed atheist, and at the same time willing um, to imagine that religion said many, many wise and useful things. Um, it seems to me that the debate between believers and non-believers has been hogged by a rather unfortunate question. Um, the question that's dominated debate has been about whether God exists or not. Um, and I think this is a very boring question. The reason it's boring uh, is not because it's not uh, a very complex question, but because one can never make any headway with it. Um, believers will look at um, atheists and think that they are damned, and atheists will look at believers and think they're stupid, and both sides feel very, very superior, and no one makes any progress. So what I want to do tonight is not stick with that question. Uh, I want to move to other questions, and um, I really want to finish that question in about 10 seconds. And if you don't like the way that I've answered it, or if it's in any way upsetting, I think the doors will still be open for you to leave in a hurry. So let me just finish that issue about God's existence or not, um, very briefly by saying that for me, God does not exist. End of story. Um, but as I say, um, you know, please don't be shocked, because I'm really moving on um, to another question, which I think is more interesting, which is, now what do we do? Um, how do we live in a society where um, that the dominant share of uh, the UK uh, it would identify themselves as non-believers. Um, what, what does life feel like for that sort of society, both for the believers and the non-believers within that? So I want to identify myself as a strange sort of creature, somebody who 
doesn't um, uh, uh, respond to the doctrines of religion, who's left cold and is very skeptical by many of the claims of the doctrinal claims of religion, but nevertheless loves Christmas carols, loves the atmosphere in an old church, loves the music of Bach, the paintings of Giotto, uh, passages of the Old and New Testament. You know the sort of person. Um, and I think this sort of person that, that, uh, that I am has had a slightly ambiguous time because the great debates tend to be between the firm believers and the firm non-believers. And this middle category, which is in a sense maybe the larger category, um, has this curious sort of institutional silence. It's almost like we've been facing an uncomfortable choice. Either you believe, and then you, uh, you know, swallow all sorts of doctrines, but then um, uh, you get nice secondary stuff. Um, or you uh, reject doctrine, and then the secondary stuff is not for you, and you're slightly out in, in, in the cold. And I want to argue that this is too sharp a dichotomy. It's not a realistic dichotomy. And what I want to advocate is a form of theft from religion. I think that non-believers are in a position to be inspired by and steal from some of the finest moments of uh, religion. Some people, uh, some critics, uh, when responding to my book, have accused me of um, the worst kind of pick-and-mix approach to religion, a kind of cafeteria-style approach to, to religion. Now, um, critics are often wrong, but here they're gloriously right, absolutely on the money, because that's absolutely what I'm interested in doing, in picking and mixing from religions. Now, I don't think this is heresy, uh, I use that word loosely, um, because if you're not a believer, um, I mean, if you are a believer, I can completely understand that you cannot pick and mix, of course you can't, um, but if you're a non-believer, um, really what you're going to do is to, is to view religions as cultural productions, as the works of man. And therefore it becomes legitimate, I think, to do with religion what we naturally do with other cultural productions, with novels, with uh, music, uh, with paintings, which is to create our playlists, to manoeuvre through them, and to create things that we like and that we respond to. Um, and these lists can be quite diverse and picked from across centuries and cultures, etc., and we naturally do this. Um, and it should be considered no more odd to do this with religion than to do it with novels. I mean, imagine if somebody, imagine if you said, you know, I really like Jane Austen, but not, not all of it. Some of the novels, I don't know. But, you know, I, I'm also really keen on Thomas Mann, and uh, I've just read a Nick Hornby novel. And if you said, well, you know, that's rather heresy, pick and mixing uh, with the literature, just stay with something solid, you know, devote yourself to one of them, make a choice, that would be considered odd. Um, uh, but it, should, it, 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 it shouldn't be, and it's really less odd to, to do that with religion. So what I'm going to do tonight is to um, present you with a buffet of uh, several religions, and to take my plate and to walk you around several bits of the buffet where I think there's something rather tasty, and I want to put it on the plate. Um, of course, there are lots of things that I don't like, and we can look at some of those things as well. But I am focusing on, um, on the positive, not because I'm blind to the negative, but because I think it's more interesting. Um, I think what we, what we don't like is ultimately quite fruitless in this area, I, I want to suggest. So, um, with my plate in hand, I want to take you to the first bit of the buffet of religion and look at education. Um, now, education is something that the contemporary secular world takes very, very seriously. Huge resources are given over every year to educating the next generation. Now, what's education for, from a secular point of view? Um, education is primarily justified as a mechanism by which one generation can teach another the skills it needs for economic survival. Um, skills are going to be passed down that will ensure our competitiveness and our ability to survive and, and thrive. So that's the dominant justification for why we get educated. But there's another reason that sometimes comes out during the more lyrical moments of um, uh, vice-chancellor's speeches or politicians' addresses 
And um, that's the idea that education has this nobler, higher, vaguer purpose to make us fully human, to introduce us to our humanity, to make us citizens of the world. Nebulous, but important concepts. They're quite beautiful concepts, and I think they're vaguely touching on something. Um, and, and I like it, but I also think, I wonder how well we're doing that second bit of, of education. And I think religion, history of religion plays a, a role in this. Now, it's interesting that in the 19th century, in the middle of the 19th century, church attendance in the UK fell off a cliff. People simply ceased to attend uh, churches in anything like the numbers that their parents and grandparents had once done. And when commentators looked at the national scene, they panicked. They wondered, where is, um, how, is the, how is the population of the United Kingdom going to hold together? How are people going to find morality, ethics, um, consolation, uh, a system of meaning, uh, a sense of the purpose of life? Where is this going to come from if it's no longer going to be in church, no longer going to be with gospel? And a small but very influential group of commentators arrived at an answer which still reverberates today. Men like Matthew Arnold and John Stuart Mill started to argue that there was one dominant, ready-made replacement for religion, uh, and that was, with a capital C, culture. That culture could replace scripture. That was the mid-19th century, mid-Victorian dictum. Um, and it's on the back of that idea that there was a huge expansion in uh, university education, and particularly in the teachings of the humanities. Uh, after all, English becomes a subject that is taught uh, at university level for the first time in the later part of the 19th century, precisely on the back of this argument. The argument goes that in the novels of Jane Austen, in the plays of Shakespeare, in the dialogues of Plato, you find um, sources of guidance, of ethical instruction, sources of meaning, analyses of the purpose of life, a lot of what, is, what was formerly found in the Gospels is there ready for us in the storehouse of culture. Now, I think that's a beautiful idea and a very true idea, but it's also an idea that I don't think we are properly attending to. After all, if you showed up at UEA or any university in the UK or anywhere in the modern world and you said, look, I've come to study the humanities for one reason and one reason only. I want to learn how to live. I want to know what's right and what's wrong. I want to know the meaning of life. I want to live and then learn how to die. I want to be consoled. I want to be good. The admissions tutors would be dialing uh, the insane asylum, not the police. It simply sounds crazy, right? Completely crazy. Um, why? Why does it sound so crazy? It sounds crazy because it's just too intense. But there's a coolness to the, to the um, uh, uh, transmission of knowledge, uh, uh, humanistic knowledge uh, in modern culture. And the idea that we've come to study to live and to die you know, to separate right from wrong, this sounds, well, it just sounds too urgent, too, too relevant. Uh, and relevance is a word that the modern academy and the modern cultural world has a real problem with. Uh, it's a very frightening word. If you want to try and frighten anyone in the arts, talk about relevance. Instead of <laughs> uh, so so this, is, this is something that um, uh, 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 the modern world finds, finds challenging. Now, why is it? There's almost an unstated assumption that the business of life is relatively easy. And that there are people, poor, poor, unfortunate people, who don't really know how to live. And they've got one solution, that's that they can go off and read a self-help book. But if you're clever, you don't do that. You know how to live. 
After all, the business of living is not too hard. All you need to know how to do is to grow up, separate yourself from your parents, enter the working world, earn some money, be tolerably satisfied with employment, uh, start a relationship, maybe a family, raise some children, um, watch your parents confront illness and then death, and these signs of mortality will be creeping on you and your friends, and eventually you'll have to head to the grave yourself. But it's nothing here that's particularly challenging. <laughs> Just, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's nothing too difficult, and, uh, and, and, and so you know, if you have urgent uh, requirements, uh, there might be something wrong with you. Now, let's swing towards religion. Uh, let's take our head towards religion, because religion takes a totally different starting point. Um, for religions, the human being is in an urgent state of crisis. All of us, I'm not just speaking for myself, though I'll include myself happily in that group, I'll tell you why later, uh, all of us are only just holding it together. And um, we face on a daily, weekly, lifelong perspective struggles which we don't know how to cope with. And that's why we need help, we need guidance. We are creatures in need of help. We don't know how to live. All the major faiths call us children at different points. Not to insult us, not to patronise us, as we might think, but precisely to recognise an inescapable, infantile side, which we would uh, do well to recognise rather than shun and be offended by. Uh, And that's why we need the structure of wisdom which religions want to provide. That's what religions are. They're they're big wisdom-producing machines. They encase us in a structure of wisdom. Now, we may not agree with the wisdom they're divulging. Indeed, I don't at many points, many areas. But I'm very fascinated by that initial move, which is to present us as being in need of assistance. Um, It's so different. Think of the characteristic modes of instruction of religion on the one hand and the secular world on the other. When you want to be instructed in the secular world, you go and hear a lecture. And what's a lecture? A lecture is a dispassionate, calm piece of knowledge on the basis um, that neither the speaker nor the audience in any particular danger or trouble. And they're just uh, sharing some fascinating ideas for heading home and having a very peaceful night. Um, whereas, you know, what do religions do? They give sermons. Now, what's a sermon? A sermon is an urgent and impassioned piece of uh, didacticism that's designed to change and maybe save your life. So what's different there, what I want to draw attention to, is the coolness versus the heat. You know, there's a real temperature difference between the two. And, um, and I think the religions have got it right, or something very interesting that's going on, precisely because it so flies in the face of what the secular world uh, seems to be doing in this area. Um, now, that was the, as it were, the form of education, but there's also the way in which education is delivered. And that's another bit that I want to put on my plate from religions, because I think that Religions are highly successful um, uh, machines for educating people, and they do it very, very well, partly because they keep certain insights in mind which the secular world forgets. Now, the first insight is that we forget everything. Right? We've got terrible memories. Religions know this about us. Our minds are like sieves. And if you tell someone something at 9 o'clock in the morning, by lunchtime it'll be fading fast, and by evening it'll be totally gone. Um, in other words, um, our minds are porous. And we need to build structures which recognize that porous quality and counterbalance it. There's a wonderful uh, term that was identified by the ancient Greek uh, philosophers called akrasia. Now, akrasia is translated into English as weakness of will. And the Greek philosophers thought that all of us suffer from this terribly. Now, weakness of will means that there is lots of stuff that you believe in in theory, that you know in a way in the back of your mind, but it's not effective at the level of action. And this really troubled the Greek philosophers because they wanted knowledge to lead to action, but they couldn't help but observe that actually often it doesn't. And this uh, then enters uh, uh, the Western tradition and then Christendom 
um, as an intellectual topic, and religion becomes very interested in this uh, uh, question. How do you make sure not only that people know stuff, but also that they'll act according to the stuff uh, that they know, that they apparently know? And a lot of Christianity, but other religions too, are, uh, take this question in hand. And one of the things that they do is um, to repeat everything all the time. They are cultures of repetition. The secular world believes that if you've got something interesting to tell someone, take them in a classroom at the age of 20, pour in some knowledge, and it will just sit there through a 40-year career in managing consultancy. There's <laughs> nothing to uh, and it just And it's stay there because it's logical. If you tell someone something true, we believe, um, it will stay. And, and the assumption there is that reason is this wonderful box in our minds, and um, uh, if you push something reasonable into it, it will stay there forever. Religions think, no, you know, it'll be gone by nightfall. So we need to take countervailing uh, measures. Now, one of the things that all religions do is give us calendars. They arrange time. Um, we've got calendars, of course. We've got diaries. We've got full of stuff in them. But what's in our diaries is the outer stuff. You know, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's capitalism. It's, you know, business meetings and tax accountants and management conferences, etc. And then it's also family life, you know, picking up the kids, etc. That's what's in our diaries. What's in religious diaries is the inner life. Right? The, the, the inner self, the soul. I like using that word soul as an atheist because it you know, riles people a little bit. And it's actually, it points to something very sincere in, in, in the deepest core of the human being. Um, you know, we all know what it means when you say, I had to do it to somebody, they seem to have no soul. Um, uh, you know what that means. So the soul is the center of, of someone's individuality and deepest orientation towards the big questions. And um, uh, religions believe that they, you need a calendar to, to, to synchronize the needs of the soul with the outer world. Um, and that's why um, every day of the year has got something attached to it that you need to think about. So, you know, if you're a Catholic on the 28th of uh, March, you will be thinking um, about St. Jerome and his qualities of mercy and chastity and charity. Um, and, you know, that's because that day has been labeled uh, as, as a day that belongs to a particular person uh, and, and so on and so forth. Um, take the moon, right? Um, now, the moon is something that, as secular people, as all people, it was lovely to look at. And um, we always, you know, I, I was looking at the moon the other day. And said, you know, the thing about the moon is that it's beautiful and it, it stills the soul. When you look at the moon, your own ego, or my ego, will be pressing upwards, wanting more and more recognition. It's, it's quietened by the sight of something that's on a completely different scale. Um, and um, you, you start to sort of um, feel very small in, in a very nice way. That's central to what religion, all religions try and make you feel small at certain times of, of, of the year, or certain moments. Um, they take you into a very large space and remind you of your, your frailty, not in order to humiliate you, but in order to calm you down, really, in order to set you into a kind of transcendent context where the, 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 the travails of the individual ego are, are, um, are, are, are lessened by, by, being, you know, by, by being up against something so old, so big, so mysterious, so, so strong. Anyway, the moon, prime symbol of that. It'd be lovely to look at the moon a bit more often, the problem is we don't look at the moon very often because most of the time we're just too busy. I mean, who looks up at the sky? Very few people. Very few of us. We always mean to. It's a lovely thing. Brian Cox, not so charming. <laughs> don't do it. Um, and the reason we don't do it is because we're so busy. We've got so much stuff to do. And so we don't get around to it. But if you're a Zen Buddhist, um, or you've got a day when you look at the moon and you really think about it. There's the festival of Tsukimi, which happens in the middle of September when you go out uh, and you stand on these specially made canonical platforms and it's a wonderful ritual moment 
um, where you stand on these platforms and you recite poems in honor of the moon and the smallness of human beings and the fragility of social bonds and the importance of kindness and all these things. You're eating rice cakes and everybody's out and the kids are out and you know, everybody's in on this. Uh, and it's a charming moment. And thanks to this moment, uh, the moon gets a secure, more secure place in your heart. Now, we, we kind of reject that in the secular world. We think, well, I'll look at the moon on my own. You know, don't tell me what to do. Um, we're very individualistic in this, in this area. Um, and, and religions start from a different place. Um, they, they say the outer, the community, must dictate what goes on in the inner self. If you leave people to their inner self, they won't do all this stuff. Um, and, then, and then they will suffer. Whereas the secular world thinks, if somebody else tells me what to do, it's not real, it's not authentic, I don't want to be bossed around, who are you to tell me what to do? It'll just bubble up spontaneously and I'll do it on my own, thank you very much. That's the modern view. I mean, take, take, um, take springtime, right? Dealt with the, the moon. Another classic thing that all religions do is think about the seasons and the cycles of the earth and um, the importance of recognizing um, uh, you know, the constant time changing around us and, and manifest through, through nature. We just had, just relatively recently, a wonderful uh, moment in the, the Jewish calendar of Birkat Hilahot, where Orthodox communities will go out with a rabbi and look at the first blossom and say prayers to the maker and celebrate the fecundity of the earth in the face of this beautiful natural phenomenon which happens every year. Now, as an atheist, you might think, okay, this festival, you know, what's it all about? Look, I can get this from Wordsworth, thank you very much. Because Wordsworth is all about the fecundity of the earth and the cycles of the seasons, it's all there. So I don't need anything else. Um, the problem, there's one major problem, and they're right at the level of content and wrong at the level of form. Because the problem with Wordsworth is none of us read Wordsworth. Um, at least we don't read it you know, ever since we left university. Um, and the problem is that it's on our shelf, but just, there's just stuff to do. So that's, again, the problem. It's, it's not, it's, we're not short of good ideas in the secular world. That we've worked everything out. We know how to be good and kind and all these things. We don't know how to make ideas stick. That's our problem. And that's where religion comes in, because religions are fantastic mechanisms for making ideas stick. Another thing that religions are really interesting in and interested in is um, the whole art of oratory, making a bit of a mess of this today. But what religions are very keen on is saying that um, the way that an idea is transmitted is absolutely essential to its chances of success. And if you make a hash of transmission, um, you've made a hash of the idea. In, in other words, um, anyone who's in any position to divulge ideas must be trained and must do their job really, really well. Um, and that's why there's this wonderful tradition in all of things of oratory, um, the sermonizing tradition. In take Christianity, you know, the sermons of John Donne or John Wesley, enormous high points of oratory. And nowadays in Christianity, probably the best preachers on earth are to be found in the American South, at the Pentecostalist churches. I don't know if any of you have ever been to a Pentecostalist service in an American, uh, Southern American uh, 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 church. Extraordinary on a Sunday, you get a full crowd, and uh, the guy standing on the, on the pulpit, declaiming his stuff, and it's mesmerizing. You may not believe any of it, but you can't help but feel the energy in the room. It is extraordinary. You know, when the, when the guy makes a, the priest makes a, a, a good speech, a, a, a good point, people will suddenly spontaneously break out and they go, Amen, Amen, Amen. And in front of a really rousing speech, the whole audience just spontaneously stands up and goes, Thank you, Jesus, thank you, Christ, thank you, Savior. And everybody's just in this kind of ecstasy. It's very hard to uh, uh, resist. Now, contrast that with what goes on at UEA and other parts of the uh, <laughs> <laughs> And um, they're, not, they're not making a very good job of speaking in a mumble, 
people are a bit bored. And why is that going on? It's going on because of intellectual presumption that if the guy, the prof, has got a good thing to say, doesn't matter how he says it, what's important is that he's very, very clever. And the idea is very, very good. Uh, and if it's very, very good, even if it's mumbled, it will stay through for, for 40 years. You don't need to worry about it. Um, of course, recognize can't be true of religious teachers, but the profs, you know, we should send all our profs, UEA and other uh, universities should send all their profs uh, over to Tennessee to be trained up by Pentecostal uh, preachers, and then, you know, they come back and you get fantastic lectures where people go, thank you Jane Austen, thank you uh, Shakespeare, thank you Montaigne, and, you know, you know, rousing, rousing stuff, and um, that way knowledge would start to find a more secure place in our hearts. Why don't we, why don't we do it? Partly because what the secular world denies is the embodied nature of a human being. We exist as mind, as reason, of course, and secular world recognizes, but of course we're bodies, we're passionate creatures, we are physical beings. And if you want to educate someone, you've got to touch their, their physical being. It's no, there's no point um, simply attacking the, 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 you know, the, the, the reasoning bit. You have to appeal to them for their senses. You need to use touch and sight and sound and color and food uh, and all of these things, and that's how you're going to get through to someone. Think of food, right? Uh, and drink. I mean, all religions use food and drink. Now we've got food and drink in at one corner, you know, the sort of, in, you know, in, in the sort of um, you know, beverage uh, and uh, uh, entertainment restaurant section, and then we've got ideas, and, and you just we can't even imagine the two being joined up. But religions know that what you're eating and what you're drinking is fundamental also to a process of education. There's a kind of education going on. So again, if you're a Zen Buddhist, um, one of your most central ceremonies is the tea ceremony. And the tea ceremony is a wonderful moment when um, you're having basically a philosophy lesson in the importance of friendship mixed up with a tea party. And the ritual imbibing of green tea and the words in the philosophy lesson have a kind of subtle, almost synesthetic connection. The tea is backing up the lesson, and the lesson is backing up the tea. And it's a stronger lesson for all that. Um, so there's a kind of union of mind and, and body. And, and religions, you find religions doing this not only uh, with drink and, and food, but also with water. They involve the whole body with water, absolutely crucial to all religions. After all, um, we're mostly made of water, we emerge from water, and we respond very powerfully to water. So religions naturally want to use this. Um, we have that word watershed to suggest precisely that power that water has to help us, if you like, to move on, to demarcate time, to uh, signal a, a shift from one moment to another. Religions use uh, water precisely as, uh, as, as a marker of different units of, of, of time. Think of, um, again, Judaism. Um, wonderful uh, thing that happens every Friday, will have happened very recently now, which is that Orthodox male members of the community will head towards um, what's called a mikveh, which is a ritual bath which every community has. And um, Judaism is a lot about atonement and forgiveness. So you look at the week uh, previous and you look ahead to the uh, uh, following week and you're planning and you're uh, reflecting and you're um, uh, asking for forgiveness and you're um, looking at your sinful behavior, etc. But you don't just do this as an intellectual process, you also then plunge in water from top to toe. Um, and that act is absolutely essential. It helps the, the ideas to stick, to the ideas to, to get traction in, 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 in ourselves. Um, now, of course, you know, as atheists, um, as secular people, we do some of this. You know, sometimes um, at the end of a long day, we say, you know, tonight I'm going to have a long bath. And the point of that bath is not to get clean so much as to use water in something of an echo of what religions know it's good at, at doing. So I don't want to suggest 
that secular people don't do any of the stuff that religious people do. I simply want to say that it's very useful to know a bit more about the history and tradition of religion so as to understand ourselves. Because what religions have done in many cases is to understand human needs slightly better than the secular world. Not in all areas, of course, but in some areas. And so by a study of religion, we come to understand ourselves, even uh, uh, non-believers. Um, a bit more time? You want to cut me off? Yeah. I think we're ready to just about to break on the Okay, all right. I'll stop it there. I've got lots more. Um, we're going to have some drinks um, uh, now um, to help, hopefully, uh, lubricate the lesson uh, that we're going to continue with. Um, but uh, do, did you want to have a little bit of conversation? Let's do it. Okay, we have a little bit of conversation now. It's like the unusual format. Um, a little conversation now, and then I'll go back to the pulpit and uh, give you a little bit more. But let's uh, an enormous, usually I wouldn't resort to uh, taking notes, but an enormous amount of this book to, to absorb, and I think that is a little taste of it here. Um, to begin with, going to the points that you brought up first, about atheism in general, mm. do you feel that atheism has taken a hard turn in the last 10 years, a, a more militant turn? Uh, yes, I mean, everybody knows this, and uh, you know, the, the figure of uh, Richard Dawkins looms very large. Now, look, Dawkins is an admirable scientist and a, a you know, fantastic public educator, and he's done many, many good things, but um, depending on you know, when you catch him and what audience uh, you catch him in, he, he can adopt a very, very fundamentalist tone. And it's, it's not true, really, even to science, because Dawkins is a man who looks at the history, uh, like any uh, person who's interested in evolutionary biology, he looks at human behavior as an adaptational strategy. And so that's how he looks at the formation of family, and that's how he look at the formation of you know, government, and all the rest of it. And there's one big exception in his thought, religion. And he sees that as craziness. It has no reason uh, other than it's just uh, stupidity. Right, it's, it's and, um, and I think this is an obvious flaw, and uh, it, it's clear that religion has, if you're an evolutionary biologist, I don't look at the world, and maybe I find this view slightly sterile, but as an evolutionary biologist, yes, um, uh, of course it's an adaptational strategy, and to deny, um, by which one really means it makes you feel a bit better, it makes, helps you cope with life, um, and of course it does, and therefore the, the fundamentalist approach, if you like, i.e. the total rejection of any validity, um, is, is cutting yourself off from the sources of insight. Um, I think what atheists tend to forget is, um, a certain kind of militant atheist, is just how much uh, of religion can be used, even if you don't believe any of it. And I remember this struck home when I was um, at university, and I started reading St. Augustine. And I was a committed atheist. My father was a bit like Richard Dawkins in many ways. And so I grew up quite cocky, sort of thinking, oh, religion is really, you know, uh, you know nonsense. I thought, St. Augustine, how disgusting. I'm read a religious guy. And so I started reading St. Augustine, I was mesmerized. City of God, fantastic book, full of concepts, which whether you believe in God or not, you can take out. I mean, the whole concept of two worlds, two cities, um, it, you know, and, and two different kinds of status. Status in an earthly sense, dependent on power and money, and status in a heavenly sense, dependent on the state of your soul and how close you are to the teachings of Jesus. Fascinating dichotomy, so true, so vivid absolutely doesn't depend on being believed in as such. Um, but yet, you know, once you have an idea like that, all sorts of things fall into place. So um, I'm waffling on, but what I want to say is the fundamentalism uh, ceases to acknowledge uh, uh, the, just how much of religion is, is relevant and speaks to, uh, to non-religious people.
and you're trying to inject a softer uh, approach. And it's not only uh, Richard Dawkins, it's also the Christopher Hitchens and Isaac Gray and Sam yeah. and it seems yeah. to be the, the number of uh, atheists that fundamental. Yeah. I've made, I mean, with every, every book, one makes new friends and um, makes a lot of new enemies. Um, and uh, I've received, uh, uh, you know, there's an association of uh, American atheists, and um, I think I'm, I'm now the number one hate figure. They have a list of people they hate, and I'm the number one hate figure. And uh, they organize a constant email campaign. They send me emails, things like, you betray atheism. Extraordinary suggestion. Um, <laughs> fundamentalism does not belong to any group. It's a uh, rotating, roving cast of mind, a rigidity of mind, where one's trying to push something away and divide the self. And um, yeah, anyone can be guilty of it. Right. Uh, I dare say you've gotten uh, worse. You've raised the iron. Um, the fundamental of uh, the uh, atheist more than you have the believers. Uh, well, the yes. I mean, there have been a few. I'm glad to say a few um, the people, who, uh, religious people, who've been um, deeply offended. As indeed they might, but actually most um, those people have been incredibly gentle. And uh, had an interview with the Church Times a few weeks ago. I was chatting to uh, a guy there, and he said, "Look, you know, basically we agree on everything." And um, I think, I think you, know, you should come over to us. And uh, <laughs> why don't you? Why don't you start attending my church? It's my really church. And uh, he said, you know, it doesn't matter. Lots of our congregation don't believe in anything. <laughs> just be at the back and uh, we don't have to say anything or whatever. Just, just come along. And I had to say, look, you know, um, it's true we see lots of things in common, but, but I think it's an insult to you, you know, because um, you're about belief and you should be about belief. So, you know, I think, yeah, I, I think there's been a certain movement. I mean, the Church of England is um, so such a gentle organisation in many ways that it... Um, it, it, it has in recent years tried to welcome everybody, even um, non-believers, quite strong non-believers. And um, you know, I'm not sure how, um, oh, I don't know, I'm not sure how good that is for, for them, really, rather than for non-believers like me. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's lovely for me, to, you know, great to be let in, but I'm not sure long-term how successful the strategy that might be. Very compassionate of you to worry about the... Well, I don't really. <laughs> Uh, so what has been the more, uh, the more thoughtful criticism that you've received? Um, from both camps. Yeah, from both camps. Um, well, one line of criticism has been to say um, you cannot uh, take things from religion. You cannot take a bit from religion. Because the whole thing is like a, 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 a sculpture that, that where every part belongs to it. Everybody's holding up another part. And to say, for example, you, know, you like the mass in B minor, but you don't believe, uh, is nonsense. Because the person who believed it um, could only have created it. The person who created it believed, and that's why he created it. Couldn't have created it otherwise. You, know, you don't understand it. How can you say that you're moved by Bellini and not understand the emotions that, that, that are in there? And I understand this. Um, but my honest, my honest view is that um, I don't know how to respond to that. Because I can only say, well, actually, I really like the Mass in B minor. Um, I don't know what it would be like to be a believer and, um, and, and hear that piece of music. It may be much more powerful, I don't know how powerful, but all I can report is it's quite powerful for me. Um, and I don't know what the full strength dose is like, but I like the sort of medium strength. Um, and, I, I, and I can understand, you know, if you've put up Chartres Cathedral and spent you know, 300 years doing so, someone to come along and go, you know, love the cathedral, um, pity that the resurrection, you know, not sure I, you know, that's not very polite. And I do understand, so, you know, yeah, I understand that. But it does reinforce your point that uh, religion has been very adept at using human senses to convey its message. So you'd be like a math and be modern, but that's your senses appreciating it before your intellect 
Yeah. Absolutely. And also, you know, what should point out that religions have appropriated all sorts of things from the secular world, of course. Um, and so, you know, really what I'm advocating is a reverse colonization. The secular world learned to appropriate things from religion. After all, you know, things like monasticism, you know, when you look into the history of Christianity particularly, all sorts of things that you think are Christian are not Christian, they're Greek, essentially. They're, they're bits of Greek philosophy. Most of Greek philosophy was sucked in and became Christianity. So what we know as a monastery is essentially an Epicurean community. Um, the, 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 uh, the Epicurean communities which flourished all over the Mediterranean turned into the monasteries. The idea of living in a philosophical community, a simple life, etc., became monasticism. So, um, so when people look at monasticism and go, that's a charming idea, you know, it'd be amazing if we got together with some sort of thoughtful people like philosophers and started one of those up. Um, but you know, that's no, couldn't possibly do that. that that's, that's too, sounds too religious. Um, uh, you want to go, no, it isn't. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a Greek philosophical idea. You know? So this is why knowing the history can help to free us as non-believers um, as much from taking ideas back from religion as seeing which ideas are perhaps you know, part of the common store of humanity, not, not religious ideas. Right. We are due for a 20-minute interval. Uh, so it's terribly long. Do you, will anyone return? Uh, please, please come back. <laughs> <laughs> we could do away with it, so that's, uh, that's what I'm going to do. Well, we take a break. Yeah, yeah, do, who, who wants a break and who got, oh, that's just embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? Do you want to take a vote? Sure, 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 sure. Who wants a break and who doesn't want a break? Uh, okay, if you don't want a break? Oh. Alright, let's go. Alright. Um, okay, so. No, we'll, we'll keep it short and punchy, and, and there's not, not too much more to go. Okay, so, uh, back to the buffet, religions before us, plate in hand. Um, something else that I really want to uh, uh, look at is art. The way that religions look at art and the way the secular world looks at art. Now, what religions, uh, so of course the secular world, devotes an enormous amount of resources and time and love to the promotion of art. Um, every year, huge amounts of surplus capital uh, are fed to the arts. So much so that you sometimes hear people say things like, um, uh, you know, uh, museums are now our new cathedrals. You know, cultural institutions are our new churches. Uh, the Writers' Institution here in Norwich or, or other cultural uh, bodies are the replacement for religion. Lovely idea, potentially true, that would seem to offend anyone. I think it doesn't necessarily always quite come off. And I want to point out why that might be in relation to religion. Now, um, uh, it's true that there are superficial similarities. You can go to a, a museum, it's quiet, there's a sense that you're fulfilling your soul. Um, sometimes it's a bit boring, but in a good way, um, better <laughs> afterwards. Many, many similarities with religious um, uh, uh, services. Um, but I think that the capacity of art to fulfill that religious function, to, to, to fill that God-shaped hole, if you like, um, is not quite going right, um, and I think the two major ideas are holding it back. Um, these ideas are never quite clearly stated, but they're in the ether. Let me try and point them out. The first idea comes about in the 19th century, uh, when you hear that dictum for the first time, that art should be for art's sake. Um, and the idea there is that art should not be a sub-branch of politics, of business, of religions. It shouldn't be funded by people with an agenda. Um, it should be something that exists autonomously. So the artist is an autonomous being uh, who creates works that do not have an intention, that don't owe things to the dominant culture. Um, and we can go and visit, 
art and, and taking art on the weekend and other things, but it's not part of normal life. It's, it's, it doesn't want anything too urgently of life. Um, it's just to the side of life, a pleasant, wonderful, diverting thing you do on the weekend. So that's art for art's sake, which in different ways hovers over the, the production and consumption of art in the modern world. Then there's another idea, and that is the idea that the greater a work of art, the harder it becomes to say what it's for. And indeed, the very question, what is art for, is a slightly suspicious question. It marks one out as potentially not being very clever, and that the, the more complex and subtle and accomplished a work of art is, the harder it becomes to say what it's about. Um, so much so that um, quintessential experience of the modern uh, uh, art lover is to go into a modern collection of, uh, of art in a museum or whatever and emerge not quite knowing what it was all about. Um, but if you're nice and polite, you don't blame yourself. Uh, so you don't blame others, you blame yourself. And you think, perhaps there's something I didn't know. Perhaps I must be stupid or, or, or something. Um, and the captions don't help you. There's very little direct guidance. Lots of guidance into provenance, <coughs> price, and technique. Very little guidance in the wider purpose. Uh, Catalogues uh, don't inform us that much, often seem translated from German badly. Uh, <laughs> so we're in sort of fog. Now, contrast this with religion, swing towards religion, which is completely different. The purpose of art is unbelievably simple. You can state it on the back of a postcard, um, and the purpose is uh, really twofold. Firstly, the point of art is to teach us how to live, how we should optimally behave, uh, what we should aim towards, and secondly, it should warn us how not to behave. So in other words, it has an ex exhortationary function, and it also has uh, a cautionary function. That's the point of art. Art is explicitly allowed to be didactic. Um, it has a, 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 a point. And now, why do we need this kind of didacticism? It comes back to the notion that we forget everything. Uh, that the normal way in which we learn stuff doesn't properly affect us, doesn't affect us enough. And so we need art as a backup to promulgate and support ideas which would otherwise be dead within us. So there are all sorts of ideas that we believe in in theory, uh, all sorts of patterns of behavior. We know that we should be kind and generous and sympathetic and empathetic and all this stuff. But the problem is we are most of the time. And uh, because we're stressed and we're <coughs> under pressure, etc., and we sort of just forget about it. But we know in theory that we should. And art comes along and sometimes revives those nobler impulses within us. I mean, we know this from the secular world. This is music. I mean, imagine you're driving down the motorway and um, I'm grumpy and stressed mood. Suddenly, uh, on the radio comes uh, Hey Jude, and uh, within about three minutes, as Paul McCartney's getting really into the swing of things, you suddenly remember, oh, that's what love is really all about. Um, and you start to feel in a sensory, visceral way, something that might otherwise have languished in a merely intellectual way. Because we, we all know that we should be loving and love and love and love. We forget about it until a work of art um, reunites uh, a living connection with a concept. And we know this from all sorts of art forms. You know, we know this from a novel. Well, that experience we sometimes have when we come out of a film and you, know, you come out into the, um, uh, the night air and you think, I've had enough of squabbling with my family. I don't want to be a mean person anymore. The film has helped to bring you to a certain place and has given you a kind of encouragement, a, 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 as I say, a living sense of how, how you might want to be. So there's a lovely phrase in Hegel, philosopher Hegel, when he says that art is the sensory presentation of ideas. And Hegel asks, well, why do we need art? We need art because ideas, when they're simply presented to us intellectually, don't stick. So we need a sensory presentation of these ideas, and that's what religions understand, and that's why they invest so heavily in all uh, the arts. They're using art as propaganda. 
Um, now, when we hear the word propaganda, we normally think of two people and panic. The first of those is Hitler, and the second is Stalin. Um, and we imagine a very slippery slope, and these two guys are waving at the bottom of the slope. So I think religion suggests ways in which we might hang on to the middle of the slope. Um, ways in which, because um, uh, really what religions are, are trying to do at their best moments is remind us, make propaganda on behalf of some quite nice stuff. Um, like kindness and goodness and forgiveness and charity and all this kind of stuff. So when you look at um, a, a, a propagandist work um, by a religion like Rembrandt's lovely painting by Rembrandt called Christ Crossing the Sea of Galilee, which is Christ and his buddies crossing the sea and it's choppy and whatever. That, that's a piece of propaganda on behalf of courage. It's trying to get you to be more courageous by getting you to look at how some uh, people handled their challenges and it wants you to imitate them. Imitation of Christ in art, very dominant way in which art works in the Christian tradition. But it's really trying to propagandize on behalf of courage. And many works of art, as I say, have that mission. Uh, courage and other virtues are being defended and, uh, and, and, and enhanced. And um, so I think that's a fascinating mission, so contrary to the modern ideology around art, which is so silent, so cool, so suspicious of certain kinds of, 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 of relevance. I should add, it's not necessarily the artists that are at fault at all. It's the framing device uh, that the modern world uses. I was thinking about this in relation to Rothko. Because I remember as an adolescent, um, I was really struck by the canvases of Rothko. And I was about sort of 16 and very gloomy and um, uh, sort of depressed kind of guy. And I went, I remember going to the Tate and thinking, wow, these things are amazing. And I didn't really know were, and I remember looking around, sort of trying to understand what, what, what's going on here. I sort of felt all sorts of things, but I don't know what, you know, I don't know what to make of it. I remember looking around for guys and saw a caption, um, and the caption told me where the artist was born and uh, what the painting was, was painted on, and um, other such not particularly relevant or, or, or important details. And then years later, literally years later, I was reading a, a, an interview that Rothko had given to Time magazine. The guy from Time magazine said to him, kept pushing him, going, hey, Mr. Rothko, what are you, what are you doing this for? What's what the point of your art? And at one point, Rothko gets a bit irritated, and he gives a completely straight answer. He said, I want my paintings to be areas where the sadness that's in each of us can be shared among us communally, so that you don't have to be sad alone. And I thought, my goodness, that's what Rothko was doing. I thought that's what he was doing. But the tape never allowed me to think that. <coughs> Not by coincidence. But that's what Rothko himself wanted his art to do. And once you, once you get that sort of frame, okay, you think, well, that's when we can be sad together. Well, that's kind of an interesting mission. It completely changes what you might make of the work. So I'm not saying we have to reinvent the art that we're making, but we might look at the framing device, which is, after all, what religion really is, a giant frame around certain productions. Um, Architecture, similar argument to be made of architecture, because religions are all involved in architecture, because they believe fundamentally that where you are influences who you can be. Now, the modern world treats architecture as a sub-branch of property development. So you buy a bit of space, and then grocery ship money, you buy that space, and do whatever you like with it, and then hopefully make a profit. And that's what architecture and, and property development are about. Religion looks at uh, architecture as a branch of mental health. The argument there is, if you don't have the right space around you, you won't be the right sort of person. You literally might become evil in the right sort of space. In Catholic uh, medieval aesthetics, and lots of fascinating thinking that identifies beauty with goodness, that literally what is beautiful is a material manifestation of what we would at a moral level call good. And similarly, what we would call ugly, what strikes us as ugly, is a material version of evil. And therefore, if you're in an ugly environment, 
um, you will be taking your cue from the environment. And that's why we need to invest in charged cathedrals and temples and churches and other things, because that beauty will help to make us into certain sorts of, of people. Um, and um, uh, all sorts of consequences for the modern world, because in the modern world we think, well, if you don't believe, you can't possibly put up a church or get that interested in architecture or any of that. And um, you know, I, I question some of these assumptions. I think that space continues to matter much more than we'd like it to, perhaps. Um, because if you're really alive to space, you have to feel sad most of the time, because most of space has been so ruined, precisely by, well, it starts off with, with, with Puritanism and Protestantism, but essentially the denial of physical space as a deeply, um, as a deeply uh, influencing factor in, in the state of our soul. Um, moving on, another thing that um, religions are fascinating uh, at, at, at drawing us to is the notion of organization. Now, the thing that's really central about religions is that they are organized. After all, we say you know, organized religions. So, in other words, they're agglomerations of people who've got themselves together and are pushing in a certain direction um, in a coherent, corporate way, uh, if you like. Very different from the secular world, because the secular world believes that if you are interested in the soul and the welfare of the soul, you must almost, by definition, be on your own. You must be a lone voice. Because only the lone voice is pure. Only the lone voice is uncorrupted. And that's why people who are in that kind of soul space in the modern world um, tend to work on their own. You know, they're, they're writers, they're poets, they're in the back of the garden, in the garden shed, they're in the attic, they're, they're psychoanalysts working from their um, <laughs> bedrooms, etc. Uh, they're, they're musicians. They're not, they don't belong to an overarching structure because of that romantic, in the 19th century sense, idea that uh, the lone individual is the carrier of truth and the group the institution, the bureaucracy, is corrupt, is, is evil. Uh, and that's a very strong idea. Um, whereas, uh, you know, the only th the thing that's most comparable to uh, uh, religions in terms of organization, uh, and their organization of genius, that we have in the modern world, are multinational corporations. Very similar to religions in all sorts of ways. They've got logos, and of course, religions are the first, the first to practice what it means to be a branded organization, to follow that branding from you know, the side of your building down to what's on your shoes, uh, to you know, what you're writing with, etc. That, that there should be a coherent identity across time and space, across many individuals, something that multinationals have picked up from religions. Um, the whole idea of a disciplined workforce that's uh, reading from the same kind of um, uh, uh, um, uh, documents, etc. Uh, uh, different branches across uh, different continents that follow the same patterns. All of this, religions were, were pioneering, if you like. And because, of course, the big difference between multinationals and religions, which is that multinationals are concerned with the outer self and religions concerned with the inner self. So multinationals will be selling you know, shoes and pizzas and cement, whereas religions are trying to uh, save your soul. Um, and it's almost like you've got these three elements in the modern landscape. You've got religions on the one hand, organizations, corporations, very disciplined and organized. Um, you've got uh, multinationals, very disciplined, uh, organized, selling you pizzas and shoes. And then you've got um, the modern people who are interested in the soul uh, who are in the bedroom. Uh, they're in the, the shed, uh, in the attic. Uh, and they're speaking as lone voices. And that's part of the reason why no one hears them. Um, they don't get heard very much because they refuse to get organized. And one of the things that organization does is it gives you financial might. So the Catholic Church pulled in $97 billion last year. That helps to get your message across. Um, as people say, you know, why, why do we still believe in religion? Well, you know, if you've got that sort of advertising budget, um, that's going to help you. Um, similarly, if you've got a group of people, you're pooling intelligence, you're pooling resources, you're pooling status and talent um, and, and, and all the rest of it. Um, so it's almost a presumption in the modern secular world that 
the book, that writing a book is the way to change the world. Right? I say this as a writer who's been trying to make a go of it, but slow. You see, the, the, the modern world is, um, uh, believes that, well, t- take, take uh, our friend Dawkins and, and, and other atheists who wanted to blow aside religion. What have they done? How have they decided to do it? They've decided to write a book. They retreat to the study and they pen this you know, beautiful, uh, uh, logical, sarcastic uh, polemic. And they think that with this, it's just going to blow the house of religion down. And, um, and it will all be perfect. The bad news for all these guys is that of course it won't work, because a book can never destroy religion um, on its own, because religions are not just books. Of course they've got books right at their centre in many ways, but they're also so much else. They're community centres, they are um, uh, uh, you know, dining halls, restaurants, they're um, uh, uh, places you go to sing, they're schools, they're universities, they're publishing houses, they're radio stations, they're television stations, they're all sorts of things as well as being simply um, ideas. So I think that's something that the secular world is so hung up on. We, we tend to believe that ideas are everything. They're not. They're just one part of uh, these debates about the course of civilization. And religions know this. And by, being, by putting ideas in the correct setting, um, they become enormously uh, effective in ways that I think we should think about. Um, another concept that I think, another area where religions are really good uh, and interesting is the whole notion of community building. Now, um, even the most fervent atheists will recognize that um, uh, we're not particularly good in the modern world at building communities. Uh, most of us lead individualized, atomized uh, uh, lives. Um, I don't tend to talk to strangers. If, if you'd see me coming up here to uh, uh, Norwich today, uh, see me at you know, Liverpool Street Station, I was a very unfriendly looking sort of person with a grim look on my face, uh, looking down at the floor, not talking to anyone. Why was I so unfriendly? Um, also unfriendly looking. The reason is um, that I read the newspaper like everybody else. And so if you read the newspaper, you know that other people are, are, are all mad and, and crazy and murderers <laughs> and swingers and pedophiles. Of course you don't talk to anyone. And, and, and that's why we're also unfriendly. But the thing is that one millimeter beneath the permafrost, all of us, I think, very many of us, have got huge resources of curiosity and humanity and, and just sheer fellowship and an appetite for fellowship. But it doesn't come out because there's no context in which uh, it can come out. What religions do is once a week or twice or more, they bring us into a hall and they say, right, well, everybody can talk to everybody else. It's safe. Now, if we did this tonight, we would change that. You could say, but look, you know, we're in the secular world. We're all in a community here. We've all we'll come to hear this chap coming up from London. Which was surely it's like church. The difference is that, of course, any night of the week in uh, Norwich or in London or any any city, um, you will find moments when you can be with other people. You go to a restaurant, you go to a concert, etc. The problem is that you will never, unless you're very brave, make a friend um, because everybody is there on their own uh, and you don't talk to anyone else. So we have a wonderful machine for simulating a false sense of community. These are not real communities, but churches know to do a very simple act. Um, Not very complicated, and it doesn't rely on belief in the supernatural in any way. What they do is introduce us to each other. We will not talk unless we are introduced. And uh, religions know about being hosts. After all, the word host is a religious term. And um, we know hosts from secular life. You know, you go to a party and there's no host, or the host isn't doing their job properly. Everybody climbs up and sits like that. So the host comes along and says, look, you talk to so-and-so, you talk to so-and-so, suddenly sociability is, is allowed to flow. And the same thing happens in larger communities. Um, and that's part of the problem. The modern world doesn't have host and, and host moments and host functions. Um, 
Of course, some people say at this point, well, look, you know, what about social media? Facebook, you're fantastic. Um, go on Facebook and you can join a group, you know, fly fishing group or um, Canadian ice hockey. Find your interests and you can meet others of like-minded um, tastes. And of course, it's true in a sense. But the problem with this is that many people, and many of us, are not interested in anything. Canadian ice hockey or fly fishing, etc. We don't really want to join the groups. We don't really think that way. Um, so of course, we could join this sort of specialised community, but I think religion is interesting in urging us to join that far larger community, which is a community of everybody. Um, and precisely, it's a community of everybody, including people that look a bit weird, and we have nothing in common with them at all. You know, that guy in the corner who looks a bit odd, and um, I've never, never spoken to anybody who looks like that. Um, but the point is that the sort of spiritual journey that religions are trying to take us on is precisely to turn the stranger uh, into the friend. In other words, to see the humanity beneath um, the, the, the rigid social self. And it's a fascinating journey, and religions better than anyone else know how to take us on that journey. And it's got nothing to do with the supernatural, I, I think, as an atheist. Because religious people will think differently. Um, look, I'm going to end it there, because uh, I, I do want, we'll have more of a chat, and then we'll throw it open to everybody else. Then we'll go and have a drink and buy books. Um, but the, the, really what I want to say is that Religions, um, whether you believe in them or not, have so many things to, to, to teach us. Um, if you're a non-believer, you're interested in education. So much there about how education works. If you're involved in community building, look at how religions build communities. If you're in the art world, look at how religions are, are, are using art and, and, and transmitting art. So ultimately, I'll end with this. Religions are, at their best moments, too complicated, subtle, intelligent, interesting to be abandoned merely to those who happen to believe in them. That's everybody, not least non-believers. Thank you very much. Religions, various areas where religions seem to have interesting things to say to us, and say, well, we could we could 
make certain areas of secular life go better by having a firmer grasp of what religions are up to, whether that's in art or in travel with a history of pilgrimage, for example. Um, you know, for example, I mean, take, take something like pilgrimage. Um, you know, if Thomas Cook really studied pilgrimage, um, they, they would have lots of fascinating things uh, to tell their customers um, because no one has ever taken travel more seriously than religions. Religions see travel as indeed, of course, it is, as both an inner and an outer journey. And if you're able to align the two, you don't get that feeling that you sometimes get in secular life, that you've arrived in Athens or Rome or whatever, and you're sort of hot and bored, and you don't, you can't really connect impulse for the journey to the outer world. And, um, and uh, you know, so the tradition of pilgrimage is, is an area. But, I mean, there have been um, people who've tried to invent replacements for religion. I discussed one of them in my book. It was a fascinating example, 19th century by Auguste Comte, who, uh, the tail end of the 19th century, invented what he called uh, religion for humanity, which he understood to be a religion for people who didn't believe. It was essentially a, a stripped-down version of Catholicism, uh, minus all the supernatural bits, and with the Virgin Mary replaced by Comte's girlfriend, a woman called Mathilde. Um, uh, he was trying to seduce, and hadn't managed in conventional ways, and thought that this, uh, putting her um, at the head of his religion would charm her. Sadly, it didn't. Um, but, um, Anyway, slightly crazy, nutty uh, uh, scheme, and it, it complete with churches and festivals in honor of pottery and metalwork and um, James Watt and the steam engine, really strange, very 19th century ideas. Anyway, um, but Kant's analysis was, uh, is a beautiful analysis where he says at one point that modern societies are going to be focused on two things, unless we're careful. Firstly, making money and the pursuit of status, and secondly, um, uh, romantic love and um, uh, amounting ultimately to the creation of family units uh, and the worship of the family. And he said if a society is based on these two things alone, it will have an outbreak of mental illness. Mm. Um, and um, that's the modern world we live in. So uh, you know, he was onto something. I don't think his prescription, his cure, was particularly the right one. But it's intriguing, and it raises thoughts about what, well, where do we go once we decide that the secular world has got lots of gaps. Um, look, I think we carry on doing what we're doing, but a, a really good knowledge of what religions are up to seems um, a very important part of uh, you know, anyone involved in attempting to reform stuff. And if it were, do you refer to people institutions as well? Um, well, I think institutions are, 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 you know, are ways in which a message can be carried. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, so I, I recently started a tiny, tiny institution called the School of Life, for example, uh, in London. Any of you in London and um, uh, well, lonely. It's fantastic because every night there's something going on, and you can just pitch up and um, get into fantastically deep conversations with people um, in a nice way, deep about all sorts of stuff. And um, so it's a, it's a nice social gathering around food and um, all the rest of it. And um, I, I was designing the School of Life at the time I was writing this book. Um, and so many of the ideas have found a little niche. But look, I, you know, this is not the new Catholic Church. It's just a little experiment, really. Um, but yes, you know, I, I, more and more, I think, as a writer, um, I'm, I'm really a person of ideas, and I'm looking for different vehicles in which those ideas might travel. And it might be a book, or it might be an institution. In the School of Life, the teachers are teaching the courage to experiment with the same techniques you've discussed tonight, like call and response, or...? Uh... Uh, not, not call and response, but the interesting thing is that the, uh, perhaps the, um, 
Vice-Chancellor of UEA might want to listen to this, is that we've, we've essentially redrawn the academic curriculum rather than going to study you know, history and uh, biology. and then was, you, you, the, the subject areas are really taken after the problematic areas of life. So you study death and you study money and you study love and you study raising children. Um, in other words, it's the problem that's taking centre stage, the issue, and that everything is all the knowledge of, of humanities and sciences is called in to support and illuminate that question. Mm. So, you know, whereas, of course, in, in the secular world, generally, we tend to do the opposite. We tend to study history, right? Well, history is a very weird subject. No one's ever thought, wait, we'll open up in the middle of the night, but I don't know enough history. Um, that's not what we do. Uh, we ask more urgent questions. So our thought is, um, let's do away with that category of history and martial history in the name of the sort of questions we do wake up at four in the morning, three in the morning. Well, here's hoping we don't have any history professors in the audience, which will make open up the, uh, the, the floor for questions for Alain. We've got a roving mic here, so if you could put up your hand and wait a couple of uh, well, seconds until the mic gets to you. Uh, yes, right there in the back, about uh, six rows in. Uh, right here, uh, center. Can you hear glasses. me? Very difficult to see, actually. Uh, can you hear me? Glasses. With a hand up, ready, uh, green, green, I think. I was an arch skeptic until four years ago. I saw a ghost or spirit of some kind. Um, can I uh, ask you whether you'd be comfortable with the term mystic, perhaps? a small step beyond agnostic? Um, it's not for me. I mean, I, I really I am an atheist, um, not an agnostic and, and not a mystic. Um, and I think there are, you know, look, there are many people in the, in, in, in the modern world who say something like, look, I don't subscribe to any religion, but I definitely believe there's something out there. Um, I'm a spiritual person. And um, slight problems with that term spiritual, because um, Often when I ask friends, you know, so what do you mean by being spiritual? And I say, can't put it into words, it just defies definition. And uh, so stop asking me so many questions. And that really gets my go, because I'm a writer, and I want to go, look, every day I'm trying to wrestle with stuff that doesn't come easily in words, like, make an effort, you know, try and put it into words, what do you mean? Um, and then no, it just defies words. I thought, oh, that's, very, that's very sad. Anyway, so, um, so I slight resistance to that term, uh, uh, spiritual, from that point of view. Um, but look, I know, I mean, I was, I was with a friend um, a, a while back, and we were looking at the night sky, and I remember we were agreed on so much, we were talking about perspective and the stars and all the rest of it, and then a certain moment, you know, we're getting on well, and then some of me was, it just, just makes you think, doesn't it? There's just something out there. Um, and I said, no, no, actually, no. <laughs> And I think, you know, that's the moment at which an atheist will, you know, there's just that little step. So I think, I think, uh, to come back to your question, um, uh, you know, I, we, the, the, the atheist and the um, uh, spiritual person and the mystical person can walk a long way together. I mean, an atheist can happily understand concepts like mystery, you know, which is a very quintessential term for a very central term for, 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 for the mystic, the, the sense of appreciation of mystery. Um, I can pin a lot of emotional response to that term, mystery, but I will stop at a certain point, and you can imagine where that is for, for the atheist. So, um, yeah, we can go some of the way together. It's interesting because um, even great thinkers like Eric Fromm and Wittgenstein couldn't quite 
get to the definition. They believed that there was, as you said, something out there, but they couldn't quite get to the definition. I think Sloan called it the X experience, which is as close as we go to a proper definition. Wittgenstein didn't say anything at all. Yes. Um, so it is, a, yeah. it is a nebulous area. Yeah. And it seems that you're, you're more concerned with identifying morality and ethics and behavior, uh, ways of adapting religion to secular society, rather than people's spiritual needs or people's need to believe in a heaven or a, a divine force. Yes. I mean, the area that I'm interested in, I suppose, is vulnerability when it comes to that. And I'm, I'm, really, I'm sitting in the emotional temperature of religions and the way in which um, religions will uh, allow for weakness. I think one of the things that annoys me about um, certain kind of militant atheism is it seems just so sensible. It seems like the work of people who've got their lives totally sorted out and uh, are very kind of self-confident in their ability to get through life. Um, it seems, and it's worse, a bit smug, a bit sort of like... Yeah. And you, you want to go to Dawkins, don't you ever wake up in a crisis? What, you know, don't you ever curl up like a child weeping, going, yeah, I don't know what's going on? He seems not to. His philosophy doesn't seem geared to that. Um, and I think most philosophies should uh, have at least space for that side. And that's why I'm a great fan of psychoanalysis, which very much engages with that side of, uh, of, of human nature, in a way that religions do as well. The, the, you know, the, the child is weak, the child in need of parents. You find that in psychoanalysis, you find that in religion, obviously in a completely different idiom, but it's the same territory. Actually, anything fits the bill as a secular religion, psychotherapy with the psychoanalysis would seem to do. Well, I, I do think psychotherapy and psychoanalysis are the, I mean, it's the, the great humanistic invention of the 20th century, and uh, some people say, well, Freud's all over, isn't it? We, we discovered he was wrong, didn't we? Um, and, uh, but no, it's got a long, long way to run. You know, I think it's it's the discovery. Absolutely. Okay. Yes, that gentleman right there. Can you hear me? Yeah. Um, you talked about secular very much in terms of the writer and his study, a sort of quiet, secular world. But it struck me there is another secular world, which is modern politics. And modern politics seems to have a number of characteristics of your religious. Yep. Certainly endless repetition, certainly <laughs> the big group and that repeating. My little penneth is modern politics is trying to be a bit like religion, but that kind of strong politics isn't working very well either. And that actually we're inevitably bound for moving inwards into ourselves. And some people argue that's been a trend for a long time. Hasn't it? But, uh, I was very taken by your arguments, but it might be impossible. The, the river's going the wrong way for you. Uh, and I think you're absolutely right that politics um, is in that area. But what's interesting is that um, we don't allow politics, really. I think the temper of modern society doesn't allow politics to stray beyond the line. Take the riots last summer. Um, uh, first thing that Cameron did was to deliver a speech about morality. Um, and the need for personal responsibility and ethics. The newspapers went crazy. The media slaughtered him. We do not allow our politicians to deliver sermons about morality and ethics. We just don't allow it in, in the UK and in other places as well. Perhaps possibly for very good reasons. You know, there are legitimate reasons why that shouldn't be the case. You know, once you accept what liberal politics sets out to do, it, it is not about the reformation of character. Um, I think the reformation of character is very important. You know, we, we, we go to the gym all the time. No one thinks it's odd to try and work on your body. Uh, we think it's highly peculiar to work on your soul. Of course it isn't. We should all be doing this. But we don't want politicians to tell us that. Uh, as I say, it's not necessarily a, a, a bad reason. So, you know, what did Cameron do? Next thing that he did was to invite faith leaders into number 10. And he wanted them to do what he couldn't do, what he didn't have the authority to do, what modern politics doesn't have the authority to do. Now, that's a very unsatisfactory answer, because it's almost like saying, okay, we're in a now largely secular society, 
Um, we're relying on uh, church leaders, on religious leaders, to deliver messages, and we don't have another mechanism for doing so. And um, this shows that there's a gap in society. And um, I don't despair at that. I feel creative in relation to that. There's all sorts of stuff that we have not invented yet. And that's fine. We're still one of the first generations to be living through this very transitional period for, between the religious world and the secular. Um, and, uh, you know, the story is, is only at the very beginning. And we're going to need to learn, you know, you, you hear parents saying things like, um, you know, I really want my children to grow up with morals and good ethical sense, and, and I'm torn between either sending them to the faith school down the road or, uh, you know, the more normal uh, school. Um, and the problem is that the, you know, the regular school uh, is not going to have this strong ethical backbone, but then I don't want the kids to be indoctrinated and all sorts of things. Um, and uh, that's an uncomfortable choice. And so it's so a shame that we haven't found a way to um, transmit morality and ethical teaching outside of religion. Um, and part of the reason is we haven't studied religion closely enough, is my argument. If you want sermonizing by politicians, you need to take a trip across the Atlantic to the United States, and you get more than you can handle there. Any other questions? Yes. Okay. Um, you talked about we're going towards the cult of money, and we are already there. What do you think of the cult of money? Um, money is a way of um, placing value on things. And money is sometimes a very good indicator of, of the value of things. So we, we all know um, that certain things are priced at just the right level, that there's a real relationship between the price of something and its importance to us uh, and uh, the role that people play in making that product. So there's sometimes areas where money seems just right, rightly proportioned. And then other times, um, it seems um, we get the bad side of a money economy. We think the thing has not been priced correctly. Um, some of our fiercest debates, for example, at the moment in, in our society is about the role of mothers who stay at home and look after their children. Uh, and this is a very provocative thing for capitalism, because what's the value of that? At one level, absolutely nothing. You don't earn any money, so it's a valueless activity. So sometimes you hear people, men and women, saying, you know, what are you doing? And then the answer is, uh, nothing. Um, because I'm just, a, I'm just at home looking after the children. Of course, anyone who spent five minutes looking after a child knows that you know, it, it's heroic work uh, at the best of times. So, um, so of course, we're doing something, but it's not, it doesn't enter through the prism of capitalism. So um, it's, I mean, this is where religion is, is interesting, because religion precisely does give a value to non-monetary things. I mean, I was talking about St. Augustine before, in dividing the world between the city of God, the city of God, and the earthly city, um, what he was saying is that some things are not picked up by the earthly city. Uh, in other words, some things don't have a normal price to them. Um, and I think, it's, I think it's always a problem when, uh, when people say things like, okay, well, the way in which um, mothers and fathers should get respect is we should pay them. Um, she just plays into the old argument that the only thing that's valuable is something that has a big price on its head, which is precisely what we're trying to get away from. Some things cannot be priced, or some things are valued other than money. And to some extent, you know, Christianity in the West has endowed us with an ability to, to remember that, that distinction. You know, first thing people say when they meet somebody, you know, they're hearing about somebody, they might go, you know, what's his job, what does he do, you know. Eventually what they're saying is like, how powerful is this person? Where's, where's that person on the, on the pecking order? But then sometimes the second question is, oh, is that person nice? Is she nice? Is he friendly? You know, etc. Um, and really what one said, that's a Christian question. It's essentially a neo-Christian question. And, and the fact that we do the, draw that distinction, you know, so-and-so is really powerful, but they're horrible, or so-and-so is not powerful, but they're nice, or vice versa, you know, all sorts of permutations along that spectrum. This is a Christian division. 
and of course, a very, very important one. More questions for Anna? And right here at the front. <laughs> a bit of athletics, can um, what, uh, what personally um, have you taken from religion um, and adopted in your life? Which rituals have you adopted? Mm. Well, I think it's, look, I, I mean, the, the number one thing I've done is to write this book um, and, uh, and I think to, to understand needs that I have. But I think um, question is, um, I'd like to well provide you with a neat answer, but I think many of the solutions are going to be group solutions. So I like to say, you know, now I have a, a favourite ritual where I, um, uh, you know, every Thursday, um, you know, say certain words that I've made up in my own private thing. Um, but I don't think it can work like that. The whole point of ritual, I think, is that they are groups, that they're, they're, they're things um, that, that we do as a group. And I, I think I'm just, the number one thing I take away is that there's a lot more work to be done. And I come away with an almost uh, kind of entrepreneurial, creative energy. That's what it's given me. Because when, when you think about it, um, we still don't know how to marry people or bury people without religion. You know, at, at those key moments when we're tying a knot or dying or dead, um, people fall back on religions. Why is that? Because there's nothing else out there that people have done um, that will fill that gap. I mean, there is, I should, there is an association called the British Humanist Association. I remember going on their website but a few years ago and um, when the website came up, I thought, well, this has been designed by a child or something. It's the ugliest bit of computer coding I've ever seen. And it was a complete mess. And then it had these buttons where you could press for it to get a celebrant, what they call a celebrant, to come to marry you or bury you. Uh, and I'm clicking on the celebrant. And then um, this bloke came up with a beard, and then he and there was like explaining about why he wanted to be a celebrant. And the prose was full of spelling mistakes. And he was like in a t-shirt standing by a beach. Um, in, in, in this, yeah, and I thought, I'm not just being mean um, and, and catty for the sake of it, but I thought, the thing about religions is they do this so much better, partly because, well, first of all, they're great with hats, um, <laughs> hats, with hats um, and, and they're great with the clothes, and they give, pay real attention to the prose, uh, and they lay it out really nicely, because, precisely what I was telling you earlier, about their, their view of the total human being. So there's a, there's a gap in the market, um, is what I'm saying. So um, that's what it's given me. It's given me an exciting sense that we are only scratching the surface of what we need as human beings and what we could still do. And um, I'm just on the lookout for stuff. And um, stuff's been happening around this book. People have come together and, you know, it, it's, been, it's been intriguing. So it's a little bit too early to say exactly what will come of it. It's just it's still happening. It's still bubbling up. But, but I feel a kind of creative energy. You mentioned quite frequently in the book, uh, the need, you speak quite frequently of the need for rituals, for collective rituals that are active. Yeah. Are there any secular collective rituals uh, at the moment in existence that you approve of or endorse? Uh, well, the few that go a bit wrong, and they're interesting to think about why they go wrong. Take something like Mother's Day, right? That's a secular ritual, of course, a really religious background. But I mean, the, the, best, the best religious rituals are complex psychologically, they understand ambivalence. Um, religious, you know, what makes a, a, a religious uh, a marriage in, in a church often quite good is the moment when they say, you know, marriage is very difficult, and, um, and everybody goes, hmm, yes, that's interesting. I, it's not just a jolly party, it's about the dark, it's about acknowledging the darkness. So, um, a bar mitzvah is, is at one level about the celebrating you know, this, this young boy as, as becoming a man, 
Another level, it's trying to acknowledge the sadness that the parents are going to feel about losing their child. Um, so it's kind of the darkness. And the worst secular rituals are, are things like Mother's Day, when, um, you know, the problem with Mother's Day is that um, the, the working assumption is that everybody loves their mother. And the, and the audience do is just say, thank you, mum, it's just lovely, it's just gorgeous. The problem is that most of us also really hate our mothers or have a real ambivalence. And in order to be able to love them, we need to be able to tell them we hate them, in a way. Not hate, but, you know, have problems and resentment. And Mother's Day doesn't allow that. It's all cheerfulness. And so, so if you were designing a good ritual, you've got to, again, study how religions do it, because the best religious rituals are quite dark. They, they, know, they know that there's ambivalence there, and um, the kind of cheerfulness of modern rituals is a bit of a problem sometimes. <laughs> We've got time for one more question. Yes, we're over here. Third room, uh, fifth room. I just want to go back to the little throwaway uh, bit of what you said about being on Liverpool Street Station and uh, looking grumpy because we're all rather scared of each other yeah. because of what we've read in the newspaper. And uh, I, I particularly remember the uh, Stranger Means Danger campaign that was prevalent in schools and got introduced wholesale in the 1980s. And wonder whether that is an obstacle to taking on board some of these religious things. So I'm not familiar with the campaign. Oh, well, it was a thing that uh, when my children were in uh, school, yeah. uh, you know, there was a uh, worry that uh, children were being abducted by uh, people and they were all taught uh, stranger means danger. That was the catch line. Don't go off with anybody you don't know. Yes. You know, and uh, raised all sorts of awkward questions. And, uh, and so, never mind that. Uh, that's a bit of a throwaway, really. It's, the, um, it's really whether the fact that we are scared of each other is a big impediment to the taking on board of some of these religious things into society as a whole. We're all too yes. individual. <coughs> well, unfortunately, you know, it's a self-confirming circle because um, the more the stranger is described as an attacker and a madman and a maniac, um, the more society fractures and therefore isn't able to keep check on people in the normal ways in which people do in a cohesive society. So it, it, it rather confirms that. Um, Look, ultimately, loneliness is a surprisingly large problem in modern society. And, and loneliness, you know, uh, I often say that I'm a lonely person. People go, oh, you've got no friends. Um, and, and it's sort of a bit of a weird thing to admit. Um, but there's lots of stuff that, that, that we're lonely with. And, and we're lonely because the range of things that you can talk to people about is surprisingly limited, um, even with friends. There's an awful lot of life that is simply too dark or... Uh, strange or, or whatever, to be able to be shared. I think this is why art matters so much. This is why writing is so important, because you read in books stuff that people don't say, um, uh, bits of things that you don't even understand yourself, that you're not even talking to yourself about. That's what books are, are doing. Um, and, uh, and, and so we need to work on loneliness in many ways. And some of it will be about bringing people together to literally talk. Um, others will be about the role of art in a society. Um, but again, I think we're only still just scratching the surface of um, the sep all that separates us, but needn't necessarily separate us. Um, yeah. Speaking of speaking of things, this is uh, where we'll end. I learned we'll be signing books outside, and uh, just please all give them a big hand.
we're putting on seven events over the next um, month, and uh, it, uh, tomorrow we've got Tribunal 12, which has live streaming from Stockholm directly in the main auditorium with uh, live performances in the playroom. And uh, next week we have uh, Alan Moore and Ian Sinclair coming here to Playhouse, followed by Caroline Duffy at the end of the month. And into June we have Michael Mondaccio, James Kurtz, and a bunch of other um, luminaries. So please do check our website. And thank you all very much for attending. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Writers' Centre Norwich. You can find out more about the organisation at writerscentrenorwich.org.uk and more podcasts like this one can be found on SoundCloud or iTunes.